Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. Doug only read those few verses because there's like a lot there to read and we don't have time for it, and, but we're going to cover it all. There's a ton here. And I was super nervous in the first service, and if I'm honest, I'm pretty nervous now because it's kind of a heavy topic and something that people usually don't dive into as thorough as we're going to. So we're going to just take a second we're going to pray because, yeah, I'm still nervous. Let me pray. God, I just ask that you calm my nerves, that you speak through me, uh, just use me as just your mouthpiece to clearly articulate what you have provided for us in your word. Um, God, I pray that your word will penetrate our hearts, our minds, our souls, it will shape us more into the likeness of Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're continuing in our sermon series, Corinth Q&A, walking through chapter by chapter through 1 Corinthians. And what we've done is we'll ask a question in each chapter. So that kind of makes it a very broad sometimes uh, topic. And so that's why we didn't read all of this, but yet we're gonna cover all of it because the question is, is does, does God care about my relationship status? Now, I know that you think like social media does because like we're always changing our, our, our relationship status. Some people, either they're like, oh, I'm single. Nope, I'm ma- married. Nope, it's complicated. Well, we ain't trying to do all that. We're just focusing in on does God care about my relationship status? And he does. And we'll get to that in a second. But there's a lot here that has to get covered because Corey, if you've listened the past two weeks, either in person or you've listened online, he's had to cover sexual sin in, ch- in two chapters that Paul writes about in chapters five and six. And what we're gonna do now is we're moving into this area where Paul's still talking about sexual sin, but yet also talking about sex in a positive in- way because God created it to be a positive thing. He didn't create it to be a sinful thing. He created it to be a positive thing within the constraints of marriage. And so today, that's what we're going to cover. Because what happens in this text, and I'm going to just kind of lay it out for you, is the people of Corinth are being kind of like childish at this point. So for two chapters, Paul has written to them, getting on them for sexual sin. Some, some sexual sin, sexual immorality that even the pagans did not tolerate. So like non-Christians were like, uh-uh. Like, this, what are you guys doing? He was getting on them. And so now they're kind of almost being passive-aggressive. So in verse 1, they say, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So Paul, he, he's saying, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So he's talking to the church. They wrote, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So they're like, kind of like, Okay, so you're going to get honest about sexual sin? We just won't touch a woman at all. That's what even like other versions of the Bible, other translations of the Bible translate the Greek into saying touch instead of have sexual relations. They're just being sort of like jerks about it. You know, you've told someone not to do something, so then they take it to extreme. Well, I just won't even do this at all then. I won't. And that's not what he was saying to them by any means. But also what they were doing in this saying that they won't have sexual relations at all, they were also inviting in pagan ways of thought and religion. Because in Stoic philosophy, they would say that being single 
was to elevate yourself in a, in a way towards God. So like if you're single, then you're going to be more spiritual. They even had in some Greco-Roman Greco uh, religions that there was goddesses who were you know, supposed to be virgins. And that, and to, so then for you to be a virgin would to elevate your sexuality and to elevate then your spirituality because you're not partaking in sex. So there was just this messy world going on in Corinth that they were bringing in all this stuff and then also just being kind of childish about it and being ridiculous. And so Paul's like, well, I'm going to address it then. Since you want to write dumb things to me, I'm going to answer you with the word of God and set you straight and give you some really sound counsel and wisdom on how this works. So the question, again, is, does God care about my relationship status? Well, the big idea is this, and it's the answer. Any relationship status should reflect the gospel. So yes, God cares. Whether you're single, married, divorced, widowed, your relationship status in any of those categories should reflect the gospel in a way that brings glory and honor to God. As simple as that. That would, in a nutshell, just could solve this whole sermon. Because like, I wouldn't have to go on and get into detail. Because if your marriage is reflecting the gospel, all the things that we're going to hit on then today would have to happen. If your singleness is going to reflect the gospel, which I, I believe that it can, then you're going to have to be able to walk through the things that we're going to lay out. And so for our marriages, for our singleness, regardless of how we became single, we have to have this, just, this desire to be devoted to God, to be holy, and then to just love one another. That, that's it in a nutshell. And so that's what we're going to break down. I have five points for you today as we just walk through this text and the first one is this. Your relationship with Jesus should be your primary pursuit. That's it. If you're saying, man, I'm so dead set on this like being in a relationship or being married or, or whatever it is, or in marriage, I'm, just, I'm so just zeroed in on my marriage, that's all I care about. You're going to miss Jesus. And that's why when we read the, through the text and we didn't read all of it, that's why we read verse 35, where he says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So he's saying, I'm not trying to control you. I'm not trying to tell you everything you need to do, but I am trying to give you just a way that your relationships, regardless of where you fall, can have some good, sound, biblical order to them. And in doing so, it's going to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Like, that's what he wants. That's what God wants for us. But I've had many people, especially unbelievers, tell me, well, I don't understand how you can say that Jesus should be your number one priority. Your number one priority should be to your spouse or to your kids or to your job or whatever. And here's the deal. If Jesus is your number one priority, then it would have to then just fall in order that you're going to be the spouse that you're supposed to be. You're going to be the, 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 the parent that you're supposed to be, the employee, the employer, or the single person you're supposed to be. Like, it would just work out that way. If Jesus genuinely is the number one thing you're pursuing, it's going to fall into order properly. Now, obviously, we're going to mess up. We're not going to do that perfectly. It's impossible. We're sinners, and we're going to screw up from time to time, maybe all the time. I don't know. Like, I've been married for 19 years, and there's been some times I'm really good about pursuing Jesus, which means I'm probably doing better at being a husband and better at being a dad, and then there's times I'm not pursuing Jesus so well. And, I, yeah, Emily can tell you about that later. <laughs> but the problem is, is that we don't see that as our main focus. 
We get so distracted by the things of this world, I think, whether married or single. And Paul hits on that. He, he really does. He wants to drive home this idea that, hey, in all these things that we're dealing with in life, whether you're single or married, there's going to be distractions from it. And what I want to do today is I want to be really careful because as someone, honestly, I've never been single. Like I met Emily in March of 2001 when I was 17 and a senior in high school. And now here we are married for 19 years and together for 22 years. I have no idea what it's like to be single. I've never had to deal with any dating websites. I've never had to deal with, um, you know, social media being out there. None of that. I don't know, and I don't want to pretend that it's just, hey, be devoted to the Lord, and it's all going to work out. It'll be great. I do think you should be devoted to the Lord, but I'm also going to be considerate of the fact that there's things in your life that are going to distract you, whether you're single or married. Like, we could say, well, you know, if you're single, you got more time to devote to the Lord. Well, yeah, but you still have all the same chores and bills and responsibilities that I have, but I have someone helping me do them. Now, if you're married and I go on a mission trip like to Indonesia, I don't have to worry about who's going to take care of my house, who's going to feed my dogs, who's going to get the mail in. Emily's there. She's going to do it. But if I'm single, guess what? I don't miss my family because I'm in Indonesia just on mission. There's a, there's a good give and take here. There's a positive side to each and there's a negative side to each. Because if I'm single, then I'm wondering, like, who can I get to take care of my house? This is a struggle. This is this. And, oh, I'm going to miss work, and then that's less pay maybe. Like, there's all these things that we have to think about. But in the end, if we're pursuing Jesus wholeheartedly, I think that then that's where we'll find this undistracted devotion is how the Amplified Version of the Bible puts it. Not a... Here in our ESV that we're reading from, it says that it gives us an undivided devotion, but an undistracted devotion. I like that term, just undistracted, that we're not letting the things of this world, regardless of our relationship status, distract us from following after Jesus. Now, what we do in that then is that we take any and all of our desires within our relationship status to the feet of Jesus. Whatever it is, you desire to be married, then take it to the feet of Jesus. Your sex life is messed up in your marriage? Take it to the feet of Jesus. You're, divor- you're like on the edge of the divorce? Take it to the feet of Jesus. Like we cannot think that we're just gonna figure it out because we read some blog or listened to a podcast or read another book. Those things can be good in and of themselves. Counseling can be good in and of itself. But if you try to do those apart from just going to the feet of Jesus and seeking that relationship first, we're doomed I think that's why the divorce rate within the church is just as high as it is outside the church. And so we seek him first. Well, then what does that translate to? I think it translates to this. Then we should pursue holiness in our relationships. We should pursue holiness in our relationships. If we're devoted to Jesus, this should start to come somewhat natural to us. It shouldn't be something that we like struggle with. Like, there should be a holiness in how we conduct ourselves. And Jesus literally tells us that the, the greatest commandment in Matthew 5, verse 48, is to, be, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Like, give him everything. And then he also says, um, he didn't say that in Matthew 5, 48. He says in Matthew 5, 48, to be holy like your Father in heaven is holy. And so think about that. If you're loving God 
So pursuing him, like I, we, the first point was, and then you're desiring to be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. Think of how different any relationship would look, especially one that is meant for intimacy or leading to that through being like dating someone. Think about that. You would act so different because if we're pursuing holiness, then we're not going to be wanting to just go towards sinful things, but we're going to be wanting to go towards God-honoring things. And Paul gives like some really practical advice here. Like, let's just go to verse five and look at that. It says, do not deprive one another, talking about sex within marriage. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Paul, he's just being honest. He's saying, hey, you don't have self-control and Satan's at work. And any of us in this room, we like, well, I got ultimate self-control. And maybe you do in certain areas, but I want you to know, as a human, you are not as powerful as Satan, and he is at work in this world. Look around. You can just see it all over the place. You can drive down the street, and you can see sinfulness at times. You can turn on the news and see sinfulness. He is at work to tempt people away from pursuing God and into pursuing sin. That's what he wants. That's what he desires. He wants to just destroy things, and he wants to destroy how we view ourselves sexually and how then within our marriages, if he can destroy that, it can disrupt everything and lead to divorce. But let's keep going in verses eight and nine. He says, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Verses 36 through 39. He says, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he, he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So he's saying, if you cannot control your desires, your sexual desires, which God has given us. That is not uncommon. There's nothing wrong with us having proper sexual desires towards the opposite sex. There's nothing wrong with that. But he's saying within marriage, then don't withhold that from one another because you are going to struggle to pursue holiness then. It's going to get very difficult to stay holy because your mind's going to want to drift. It's just the way it is. And he's saying if you're engaged, don't sit around and have like this 18-month engagement, planning this elaborate wedding, and the whole time there's sexual sin taking place. It would be better not to have your fairy tale wedding and just get married and not be in sin. Like, we need to stop thinking what the world says is right and do what God says is right. I've been made fun of before because I will not ride in a car with another woman remotely close to my age. I'm not doing it. One time I did. It was with Aaron Cranston who works here and I had to go pick up a U-Haul and Emily was at work because she works from home. And I was like, Emily, I'm letting you know, like Aaron's picking me up and she's gonna drive me down to King's Towing, which is like maybe two miles from our house. And Emily's like, okay, why are you telling me? I was like, because I want you to know where I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be in a car with Aaron and I don't want some, <clears throat> someone later to be like, I saw David and Aaron driving around. I don't want Emily driving around in some car with some dude. So I 
want to be holy. I want to, I'm not even going to put myself in a position that could allow for anything to ever happen with anyone. I'm just not doing it. We're always smart with how we meet with the opposite sex. If there's no one else here at the building, like there's cameras for a reason because we want to pursue holiness. We want to make that first and foremost in our lives. And so, how's that pertain to being single then? Well, I didn't realize this. I thought this would have been just common sense, but I was told in our worship planning I needed to clear this up for students, and maybe I do for any single people. But any sexual acts outside of marriage, even if it doesn't involve intercourse, is still sin, okay? Like if, you're, like if the clothes are covering it, your hands don't need to go there probably, that's real simple. I remember my daughter's first boyfriend. I was working out in the garage and he pulled up and I was glad I was working out. I didn't even plan it that way, but I probably looked way more intimidating out there lifting weights. And he came in and I said, listen, dude, if shorts and a t-shirt cover it, you don't touch it. And if you do, life's not going to end well. Like that's just it. Like I didn't mind saying that. Like, but we need to pursue holiness. So especially students like in that, like you're setting yourself up for a difficulty that you don't want. Like, just pursue holiness, and I promise you that your marriage one day will be better. It will. And so, like, we pursue that. Now, there's more to pursuing holiness within our relationships. This is one of my longer points. He talks very extensively about divorce here. And so, to pursue holiness means staying married. It means staying married. And some of you, that like, dang, that, that's hard. Like, what do I do? And, and the, he gives you some things here, okay? He says, let me find it, my bad. Let me make sure I got the right verse. To the rest, I say, that if any brother, this is verse 12, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if a, any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, he sh she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever, unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Now, He's wanting to hit on this really, really clear. He's wanting people to understand, like, listen, if you got saved and your spouse is not saved, this is not a reason for divorce because in Corinth they were trying to teach that you, that just, you could get divorced for whatever reason. That is not a biblical reason for divorce. It's not there. It's wrong, and we can't run away. And what he's also is not saying is that the husband or, who's not a believer, the, the wife who's not a believer, becomes holy in the sense of, like, they're saved because they're married to someone. He's just saying that the potential is there. The potential is there, so stay in this. Reflect Jesus to them. But if they decide to leave, you are not bound to them. If they desert you. So des desertion is a reason for div divorce. And now, that does not always mean that someone's packed their bags and they've ran off somewhere, okay? That could be emotional desert, desert cannot talk. Desorting someone, like this, leaving them, abandoning them emotionally, physically within marriage. Abuse, physical abuse, that is 100% abandonment. And Corey joked last, a, couple, a few weeks ago, that maybe I would be like the only uh, pastor on staff that would make it in uh, prison. 
And then he joked last week, and he really wasn't joking. He nicely said, like, hey, if you're, like, hitting on a woman, like, you might get to visit your door. No, you would. And like, I, like Corey said, I might make it in prison. Who knows? I'm not that sanctified. It's like, I would just tell you, like, don't, don't do that. Because we would tell your wife to leave you if she's beating you or you're beating on her and to separate. And then we're going to come visit you and we're going to help you get sanctified. So we pursue holiness. At the end of the day, that is it. Like we pursue holiness and how we go about our relationships, whether married or single, and we don't just run off and get divorced. And then here's the deal. What if we have been divorced for an unbiblical reason? There's no adultery, which Jesus talks about in Matthew. He said if someone has committed adultery, there's a means for divorce there. If someone's been abandoned, there's means for divorce there. So what do you do if you have married someone then? Because now you're still in a position where in your relationship status, you're trying to pursue holiness. And Romans 7, 1 through 3 says this. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So what it's saying here is very, very clear. And I think that the North American church has missed on preaching on this because it is a sensitive subject. If you got divorced as a Christian for a non-biblical reason, you would be in sin to get remarried because you'd be committing adultery. It's very clear. Now, it's hard because, like, that means, like, okay, so I guess stay single because I made a bad decision. Perhaps. I'm not saying that there's, this is cut and dry, black and white, and it's all figured out. But now, if you have gotten remarried to someone or, or to, who's been divorced or you were divorced for unbiblical reasons as a Christian, that doesn't mean you run away from that marriage. You stay committed to that promise. You keep that covenant. It does not give you grounds now for divorce. That's, always, that's already happened. So now you stay on track with that marriage and you repent to God, to that person, to anyone else you need to repent to, and you live out a life of holiness. But I'm saying this to you that if you're single in this room and you are pursuing wanting to be married, take Scripture serious. As difficult as that is, and I know that, like, I'm not saying that with, like, an unsensitivity, like, it doesn't matter. Like, I understand there may very well may be people in this room who that is your situation or you're watching online. And God redeems, okay? Like, he forgives. It does not mean that all is lost. It's just what he has laid out, and we need to try our best to live by it. So, we pursue holiness then. What happens if we're pursuing Jesus we're pursuing holiness. How does that pour over then into our relationships? What's this? That we treat others as you want to be treated in your relationships. You treat others as you want to be treated in your relationships. Matthew 22, verse 39, it says, and a second is like this. He's talking about the, the greatest commandments. He's already given them one, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, body, strength. Second one, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then in Matthew 7, verse 12, it says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, 
do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So now think about this. If as believers we're called then to love others as we love ourselves and to treat others how we want to be treated, then we would take this whole text in a very different light. Because let's go back now to 1 Corinthians, and we're going to start at verse 1. It says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. In the last service, I said conjugal visits. I don't know where. <laughs> Prison, right? And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have the authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And we're going to read verses 8 through 15 real quick too. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, and if she does, she should remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Verse 12, we've covered that. I'm not going to read it again for the sake of time. That's all about being with an unbeliever as your spouse. And then verses 32 through 37. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the world, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Here's why I'm going over some of these verses again. Because if we're going to treat others as we want to be treated, then we got to really apply these texts. Because men, for centuries, have taken those first five verses and looked at their wives and said, guess what? I'm ready. I would like to have sex. Let's go. Your body's not your own. That's reality. And that's stupid. If you've ever tried to use that in a serious way, like literally trying to lord over your, your wife and say, your body's not your own, I want to have sex, you don't get the scripture. You're not applying it correctly, and you're, and you're dead wrong, and you need to repent of that. Wives, if you've used your, your husband's desire for sex in a way to try to control them because you know you have what they want, that's wrong too, and you should repent. You don't want to be treated that way, so don't treat the other person that way. It's really that simple. You're thinking, well, how's that all work? Listen, I'm not telling you how much or how often you should have sex. I'm just telling you that what the Bible says. It's not healthy to go a long time without it. It doesn't give a time frame on there because Satan's out prowling around looking to destroy your marriage. And so figure it out. Like go, you got, I'm not saying like figure it out, just it's gonna be okay. I'm saying like, do something, like get counseling, go see a doctor, do whatever needs to happen because 
treat others as you want to be treated means like not using sex as a tool to get your way or to force yourself onto someone. Like that's not okay. And so like then as we look at this, like being treated how we want to be treated, there's non-sexual ways then to serve your spouse. Like there's ways to, to cuddle, to hug, to kiss. Like I ain't walking up to Corey in the morning and giving him a hug and giving him a kiss good morning. That would be weird. <laughs> I can hug my wife and give her a kiss in the morning. There's things you can do with your spouse you cannot do with anyone else that does not involve sex. And so like we need to do those too because if you desire like intimacy with someone, it's more than just that. It's doing things for them and being there for them. But then it also would mean like you don't want divorced over some petty reason. So then don't divorce your spouse for, for some petty reason because you were unwilling to talk to them about how you hate the way they do laundry. And it's built up over 50 years and you're like, you know what? I'm done. I can't do it anymore. Like, and that's silly, but you know, it happens. Like, don't do something to someone that you wouldn't want done to yourself within your marriage. But then it would even go further. It's like, do you want to know that your spouse is watching porn? No, you wouldn't. So then don't watch porn. Like, we treat others and pursue holiness, and we treat others how we want to treat others, then we're going to pursue holiness in that because we're pursuing Jesus. It just all interconnects. It all works together. And then you'd be thinking, okay, well, what about the single or the widow? Well, I'm going to tell you this. One day, maybe you hope to be married. Do you want the person you're going to marry one day to have had a bunch of casual hookups? Do you want them to have, have this, like, really deep sexual past that they had a choice in? No. So then why would you establish that for yourself? So then that you have to work through that with your spouse one day. If we pursue holiness by pursuing Jesus, then we won't have this very long sexual history that we're going to have to deal with one day. We wouldn't want our spouse to have that. And then you're also with someone else's spouse one day potentially. That may not be your spouse that you're doing these things with. Like, it's also like your brother or sister in Christ if you're both Christians. So let's just make it real weird. Do you need to be doing that with your brother or your sister? No, that's weird. And I just ruined it for all of you. And that was my goal. Now you won't be doing it, will you? So that's what we have to be thinking is like, man, how can I treat others in a way that I would want to be treated? And if that's the way I would want, and as a Christian, you can't be like, well, I'd like to hook up, so I'm going to go hook up. Then, you're, then you got some issues. you got some real sin issues. So don't try to be like the Church of Corinth and say something ignorant like that. Like, we should be focused in on Jesus. And so then what we're doing is we're like, man, I'm going to pursue Jesus. And in doing so, I'm going to treat this person I'm dating or want to date or my wife or my, you know, whoever. I'm, I'm going to treat them the way I want to be treated and then think, too, about this. That's God's, for, especially for you men, that's God's daughter. That's God's daughter. And so, like I joked about, like, my daughter's first boyfriend, I being in, the, in my garage gym working out, God doesn't need to be flexing to be intimidating. He'll flat smoke you because he can, because he's sovereign. And so I would just be careful in how you mess with God's daughters. 
Like, I just, I, I think you, that needs to be, like, really at the forefront of our mind. Like, I don't think he finds it okay that we are just belittling of who they are. So, regardless of our relationship status, no matter where we're at, we all want to be treated in a certain way, and it should be in a biblical way. But that's not always how it happens. Sometimes we have a past. Sometimes we've made mistakes. Sometimes things have happened, and then we get in a mess. And so then how do we kind of move out of that? And I think it's this. This, this is a, a solid reality for us. Your identity is not found in your relationship status. Your identity is not found whether you're single, divorced, widowed, married. It is not found in that. That is not what he is saying. Verse 23 says, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So he's saying Jesus Christ bought you with the most precious blood. He died on the cross for your sins, took on all sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that you were cleansed of all your wrong. So don't become bondservants of men. So what he's saying is like, don't, don't tie yourself to something of this world as your identity. That's not where it's at. Like so often, like we desire something more thinking it's going to fulfill us. It will not fulfill you. you you're, I guarantee you, ask anybody in here who's been married for more than a year if their spouse has let them down or met every one of their needs. They're probably going to laugh at you. Like, yes, they've, they've let me down. No, they can't meet all my needs. No one can. And if you think that that person's going to complete you, like, it's not. They're going to leave you empty at some times. Now, are there, at other times, are they going to make you feel 100% like you're where you're supposed to be? Yes, but that's probably going to happen within the confines of pursuing Jesus, pursuing holiness, and treating each other how you want to be treated. And then it's like only bolstering your identity in Christ because it's then reflecting him. That's the only way you're going to really have this complete fulfillment because everything you're doing in your marriage is reflecting him. But then as a single, you can be like, well, I really desire to be married, and I just feel like I'm not there, and I feel like I'm incomplete. That's not who you are. If God has called you to singleness for a season, I'm not, again, never been single, so I don't want to make light of it. But trust that God is good. Trust that he is at work. He has a purpose for it. He has a reason. He's not just doing things for just, just for kicks and giggles. He really wants, like, for us to live out just with a purpose on what he's called us to do, which is to make disciples. And now there's others maybe in this room or watching online and you're in a position where you have sexual desires that are not what the Bible would condone. And you've decided to pursue holiness, to pursue Jesus. And you're not acting on those sexual desires towards your same-sex attractions. I am not in any way making light of that. But I want you to also know that in doing so, you're saying my identity is in Christ. It's not in that. I don't, my identity is not in some community. My identity is in Jesus. And again, pray for you. Our hearts break for you because we live in this broken world. And it's not like that's a mess, right? But don't let your identity get wrapped up in your sexual desires, rather for the same sex or towards the opposite sex. Like some of us, like our whole identity is wrapped up in that. And it doesn't need to be because we are bought with a price. We are bought with a price. And what that means then is that we are his. We're sons and we're daughters of the most high king. And we're citizens of the kingdom of God 
And so then what, we, what do we do then with all this? Rather, we're single, married, widowed, divorced. Our last point, we live with kingdom intentionality no matter your relationship status. This chapter, it's, it's just covering some just brokenness in, in the world. And I think a lot of Corinthians is going to because he's writing to a messy church, a really messy church. And so when we pull these questions out, like we're wanting to show you like how then it pertains to you living out a godly life that's doing what we're called to do. And we're called to make disciples. So like we need to have this intentionality that we're looking to the kingdom, that we're really living out how he would call us to live, that we're a light in a dark world. And so think about that. If we're a light, as Jesus has described us, and he says not to put a basket over a light on a hill, then shouldn't we as believers in our marriage let that be a light and not put a basket over it by living in a way that reflects marriage poorly? Or if you're a Christian single, let that be a light. Show a lost and dark world what it looks like to live out a single life that honors God. Don't put a basket over it by having casual hookups. Live out a way that, God, that everyone else is like, I don't understand what that person's doing. How can they be so content and so just in a place zoned in on God, yet all the while desiring to be married? Let them just be in wonder about how you can do that. And you know the whole time, it's only through Jesus that you're even able to play that out. And so verses 29 through 31, this is what I mean by having that kingdom intentionality. He writes, this is what I mean, brothers. The point of time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Regardless, married or single, we have limited time. He's saying the appointed time has grown very short mean Jesus isn't far away from returning. And that can mean 10 years from now, it can mean 50 years from now, or 200, who knows. But what I do know is there's billions of lost people in this world. And he's saying, hey, whatever your situation, whatever it is, you need to live in a way that that is not a distraction to you to advance the kingdom of God and make disciples. That is your first and foremost responsibility is to the Lord to go and to live in a way that is bringing people into the kingdom. And so if you're here and you're married, like I'm urging you, like then leverage your marriage to reflect the gospel and to point people to Jesus. If you're here and you're single, know that I think single people have probably impacted the church over the centuries more than we can even fathom, maybe more so than married people. Consider this. The greatest person who ever lived was single, the God-man, Jesus Christ. The greatest mere human who ever lived was single, John the Baptist. The greatest missionary and theologian who ever lived was single, the Apostle Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians. The greatest statesman from the Old Testament who ever lived was Daniel. He was single. The greatest prophets of Israel who ever lived were single, Elijah and Elisha. And then we have these people who were single for a season. Think about this. We got Joseph, Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, Jeremiah, Nehemiah, Anna, Martha, Mary Magdalene, Magdalene, and Lydia. All of them single for a season of their life that God appointed and ordained. And I'm telling you, those people, all those names I just wrote off, read off, 
They impacted the church more than we could ever fathom. One that's not even included in there, Lottie Moon was, a, was the first female missionary to China who for decades impacted a continent and so many people have came to Christ. And her work from over decades, decades almost 100 years ago, is still being played out today, like the impact of that. And she devoted her life to Jesus and he called her to singleness. Did she desire a husband? I have no idea. But she pursued what God had called her to do. So hear me, no matter where you're at, just do what First Colossians 3, 1 through 2 says. It says, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of this earth. Set your, th- your minds on him. So I'm gonna invite you to stand with me as we come to the time just to respond because there's a lot here. And if I'm honest, it was awkward to stand up here and preach about sex for 41 minutes. <laughs> but our relationships in a Christian way, lived out in a Christian way, have, have an impact possibility that no other relationship has. And I, so I wanna urge you like, to not look at your status of your relationship as just whatever, but use it to further the kingdom. And so here's how you respond then. Pursue holiness. Pursue a selfless love for whoever you're in a relationship with. And so that your devoted attention to God is not divided up. Like just focus in on him. And then know that no matter what your past is, no matter the condition of your, certain, your current situation, that you were bought with a price. The blood of Jesus has purified that, has cleansed it. And you do not have to let that be your identity. Your identity is in him. And then for those of you that are in a missional community, love on singles. Don't not invite them to something because you think they might not want to go because they're going to feel like an outsider because they don't have a spouse or someone with them. If you're in a missional community, the family picture on their mantle, Pastor Corey always says, then the single person should be of their missional community. That should be the family picture on their mantle. Don't neglect them. Don't think of them as lesser. And that's happened very often in in the North American church. And then lastly, we have an ultimate marriage to look to. In Revelation, we can read about the marriage supper of, of the Lamb, and we one day will have the perfect marriage. But it won't be with your spouse or a future spouse, but with Jesus. Like, that's, that's the marriage that we're waiting for. That's the perfect marriage. That when his bride, spotless and blameless, comes before him at the end of times, and we have this marriage supper of the Lamb, and we're together, and that is the perfect marriage. And so let's pursue all these things so that when we show up before him at the end of times, we do show up spotless and blameless. Let me read this over you. This is Jesus the Last Supper. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's when that marriage supper of the Lamb happens. That's the perfect marriage. So today, if you need to repent of how you've handled relationships, if you just need to rejoice that God has placed you where he's placed you, no matter where it is, do so, and then come and just have a foretaste of what is to come when we have that final banquet 
and Jesus consummates the marriage.